Mark chapter 9, the passage today is verse 2 through to verse 8. Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through to verse 8. I'll read this for us, and uh, Pastor Paul will unpack the word of God for us today. Mark chapter 9, and uh, just a reminder as we read this, that uh, this is the word of God. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Amen. Amen. Uh, thanks, Peter. Uh, let me pray for us as we open up the word of God. Um, dear God, would you... Uh, give us the faith as we come before you and your word to believe uh, that you are alive, uh, that you are a present God, and that you are an active God who speaks to us as we open up your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to enlighten our hearts to see Jesus Christ clearly uh, through these living words. Uh, may we be changed as we behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, uh, that you would transform us um, yeah, from glory to glory, even today, uh, make us more like Christ as we see him today. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And just to give a bit of context of where we're at uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, last week, um, Peter, or the Apostle Peter, had the best and worst day of his life. Right? If you remember, uh, in the span of a few minutes, uh, he was both uh, commended by Jesus and then completely uh, smashed and rebuked by him. Right? It was the best day because Peter made this incredible confession. Right? Jesus is the Christ. And in the Gospel of Mark, no one has made that confession until now. Right? Peter's the first one to make that. And you know, we've been going along through Mark, and it's been frustrating because the disciples are like so um, confused. Uh, they, they're so like they don't understand. And for the first time, it feels like you know, maybe they get it. Right? It's such a breath of fresh air. Uh, Peter scores a, like a home run. Um, and then Jesus is like, yes, right? I am the Christ. And let me tell you what the Christ means, right? And so in verse 31, Jesus says, he will suffer many things, be rejected, be killed. And then this leads to Peter's worst day uh, because he hears this and he draws Jesus aside and he rebukes Jesus. In return, Jesus rebukes Peter and he calls Peter Satan, right? And so, you know, you're having a bad day when Jesus calls you Satan. Um, and so he both went from a really high high to a very low low. But the reason why Peter rebukes Jesus is because when Jesus talks about uh, the Messiah suffering and being rejected and being killed, uh, it doesn't make sense to him. Uh, for Peter and the disciples, their understanding of what the Messiah is going to be is like the complete opposite. It's totally different. 
Right? They thought the Messiah would uh, raise up an army, perhaps, and overthrow the Romans and you know, reclaim the promised land for the Jews, and he would sit on a throne right, in, in, at that point in time. Uh, so they thought the Messiah would build an earthly kingdom, sit on an earthly throne, and be an earthly lord and king. But Jesus came to build a heavenly kingdom, uh, sit on a heavenly throne, and be an eternal lord and king. Right. They thought uh, the Messiah would be victorious through a physical war, but Jesus was here to be victorious in the spiritual war. And they thought the Messiah would win by killing the other guys, right? kind of like Joshua or David in the Old Testament, right? destroying the other guys. But Jesus would win not by killing the other guys, but by letting the other guys kill him. Right? So you can kind of see how their understanding of what the Messiah would be is very different from what Jesus really is about. So when Jesus talks about suffering, rejection, and being killed, uh, their whole expectation of Jesus is being flipped upside down. And before they can even wrap their minds around what Jesus has said about himself, in verse 34 to 38, we saw that Jesus basically says then, and that's what I want you to do. I want you to suffer. Right? I want you to carry a cross. I want you to lose your life for my sake. So I want you to put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Um, their kind of life has been, you know, yeah, it's been flipped upside down. They would have been so, like, confused, perhaps doubtful, right? doubting, whoa, is this really the Messiah? Because we thought the Messiah would be like something else, but this guy's saying a like, totally opposite thing. Maybe this isn't the Messiah. I think they would have been reluctant. As Jesus says, come and die for me, they're thinking, whoa, 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 I thought that if I followed you, you'd get to a place of power and prestige, and, you know, I'd be able to benefit from that. But now you're telling me that I've got to go die if I were to follow you. Right? The commitment and passion for Jesus, I think in this moment, would have been shaken. Right? And perhaps in this moment, they might have questioned their allegiance to Jesus the most. All right, it's in this backdrop that in our passage, we're going to, we're at Mark 9, verse 2, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he says he leads them up a high mountain by themselves. And what we're going to see is that Jesus is going to reveal to the disciples who he is. In their place of confusion and doubt and reluctance, what he's going to do is give them what they need. But what they need is not a, a pep talk. It's not just an encouraging word. What they need is to see him. Because if they can see him, the confusion and the doubt and their reluctance to follow him will, will be stripped away. Right? And they'll re, re kind of discover their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And, you know, as I think about Kingsway right now, you know, we're going through a tough slog. I think perhaps for some of us, this is our lowest point. We are confused. We're doubting. Maybe our um, hearts are reluctant to follow Jesus. Our allegiance is being shaken. And what you need uh, more than anything else is to really see who Jesus is. Right? So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to see who Jesus is in three things. Right? We're going to see three things that he reveals about himself to his disciples. And hopefully you can kind of see Christ uh, in these characteristics today and reconfirm your commitment to him. So the first thing we see is the glory of Jesus. Right? We see the glory of Jesus. Right? The first thing Jesus is going to reveal to his disciples is his glory, right? his kind of majesty, his, his radiance, um, and that's going to help the disciples follow him 
um, because they're going to see that there is no one like him right, in this world. All right, so verse 2, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Right, That word transfigured kind of means transformed. Uh, from that Greek word, we get metamorphosis. And so Jesus transformed right before their eyes. And verse 3, it says, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Right, for the first time, um, Jesus peels back like uh, his veil of humanity, in a sense, to give the disciples a glimpse at the glory uh, that is within. And Jesus begins to shine and he's radiant in light like nothing else on earth. Right? Matthew's gospel says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And so Jesus takes him up in mind and he just begins to glow like nothing on earth can produce. And it's hard not to be reminded of another event that happened in the Old Testament. Right? Maybe you're thinking of this. Um, Moses, when he went up the mountain, Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, to meet with God and receive the Ten Commandments, it says in Exodus um, verse 29 that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Right? Moses, too, went up a mountain, met with God, and his face starts shining. And then he puts a veil over his face to cover it whenever he spoke to the people to hide the glory. Because, I don't know, maybe it's like, oh, I can't speak to you, Moses. Sorry, the light's getting in my eye. And so similarly in this passage, Jesus is going up a mountain and his face begins to shine. But there's a difference. And Moses' face was shining because he met with God. And so Moses was reflecting the glory of God. But here in this story, God the Father, he will show up, but that's later. And so why does Jesus' face shine? How can he shine when he hasn't met with God? And that's because he is God. Right? Whereas Moses' face was reflecting the glory of God, Jesus' face is displaying his own glory. Right? Jesus is the fullness of God in the flesh. And for the moment, it's like he's taking off his veil that he's always been wearing, that he's been hiding the glory, and he's showing it to his disciples. Right, this week, I randomly, I didn't plan this, but I stumbled across a YouTube clip of Undercover Boss. Um, and I was like, oh, I love Undercover Boss. Um, it was the CEO of Model Sporting Goods right in America. And, you know, th th what happens in Undercover Boss, they go into their store um, pretending to be a new worker. And so he was pretending to be a former pizza store owner. He had to close down his shop and he shaved his head. Uh, that's commitment. And he puts on a fake beard. Uh, I think he put on an accent, actually. He, he really got into it. Uh, and he got paired up with this wonderful lady. who's trying to teach him how to you know, work the store, right? But he's the boss. This lady is a wonderful lady. Uh, she's uh, been in, living in a homeless shelter herself. And she's super hardworking. And, you know, sometimes, you know, um, some people get fired through this um, kind of experience this this lady if just if you're curious uh, ended up getting a promotion right? i thought that was sweet uh, she got a fourteen thousand dollar raise and she was like oh she's like shocked and then he's like and by the way i've got a check for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars i want you to buy a house because i don't want you living in a homeless shelter and she basically collapses and she's on the floor and the ceo's on the floor it's like a really emotional thing if you, if you watch it um you'll get something in your eye as well but um, i love the part in undercover boss when the people walk into the room and they see the CEO, right? And the CEO reveals his face, right? He cleans up the makeup. 
He pulls off the fake beard. He takes off the fake glasses. And the look on the employee's face when they realize that the person that they've treated as a new recruit is in fact the boss, right? I love that kind of moment where like the light bulb switches. And this is one of those moments, I think. Now the disciples don't get it completely because you know they're a bit slow. But for a brief moment, Jesus will peel back Right, the, the mask, in a sense, and he's showing the glory that is with him. And this matters because the disciples have questioned right, the Messiah, the suffering, the dying. It's not what they expected. Uh, but Jesus is showing them that even though the path he walks is unglamorous, he is indeed glorious. And oftentimes a Christian walk is unglamorous and we're called to sacrifice and give and do things that might not always make, seem to make sense. And we might question whether following Jesus is always the best thing. But if we see the glory of Jesus and understand that there is no one like him in this world, following him becomes much more easier. Right? Even though this path is unglamorous, my God is glorious and I'm willing to follow him. But if we don't see him in that way, the sacrifice and the call that he makes to us to die to ourselves just won't seem worth it. Right? If we see Jesus in all his radiant glory, we will relate to him differently. Just like in undercover boss, when, when they realize he's the boss, they're like, their posture changes and the way they treat him changes or treat her changes right? because they understand who he or she is. And we will teach Jesus teaching his commands, and his call to carry our cross and lose our life differently right? because there is nothing that compares to following and living for him. I once sat in a room um, where the pastor, there was a pastor, and he said to the group uh, in the room, he said, um, you must be willing to die for me right? and die for this church. Right? That's how you should think. Do whatever it takes. Um, die for me. And I remember sitting there thinking, <laughs> I'm not going to die for you. <laughs> well, that, that, I'm not doing that, right? You're just a man. And I wonder if the disciples are struggling with this, right? Who is this guy who calls us to die for him? If he's just a man, he's not worth it. Uh, even if he's a great man, but if he's a glorious, a radiant God, right, he's worth dying for. And so do you see him in his glory? When you read the Bible, and you see Jesus, you see him as the most amazing being to have ever lived. Right? When we sing songs, just like we have, is your heart acknowledging that you're stepping into holy ground and singing to an immeasurably marvelous being? Do you go about your day giving thanks that this glorious Jesus is your friend and you have a personal relationship with him? Right? Do you see him as glorious? Right? When we do, it will help us. It will change things. That's the first thing he shows us, the glory. We see the glory of Jesus. And the second thing is we see the legitimacy of Jesus, right? The legitimacy of Jesus. And Jesus shows his legitimacy to his disciples because that helps us trust who he says he is. And when we see that he is legit, right, we will believe him. But throughout the ministry of Jesus, the religious leaders, they've constantly questioned him and attacked his legitimacy. They didn't really believe he's a rabbi. They don't believe his claims of being the son of the father coming down from heaven, that he's, you know, able to do these things. He must be of the devil. Um, and they, they, don't, they don't give him 
the, the place that he deserves and the place that he says he takes. And as Old Testament believers, the religious leaders, they wanted to connect what they believed in the Old Testament to Jesus, but they couldn't do that, right? Which was their struggle. Right? God is one and you're saying you're the son of God. That, does, that doesn't work, right? And stuff like that. But also the disciples are probably questioning the legitimacy of Jesus. Right? Because again, they thought Messiah would look like this, but Jesus is saying he's going to do that, right? Is he really the Messiah? And so it's interesting throughout this story, that this um, passage, it's filled with Old Testament imagery, right? If you're going to look for it, um, and it's as if Jesus, to satisfy their doubts about whether he is really the promised one, the one prophesied, like he's, he sprinkles this moment with a lot of Old Testament image. So Jesus takes them up a mountain. Old Test in the Old Testament, um, going to mountains and meeting with God is like found throughout many places, like Moses and Elijah, for example. Jesus' face, he shines like Moses did, right? And I talked about that. Later, Peter will say the word tabernacle, right? Which was an Old Testament place where God's presence would dwell and man would meet with God. And then God the Father will show up in a cloud, which is one of the most common ways God shows up in the Old Testament. So it's constantly these kind of Old Testament callbacks. And each of these, I, I believe, is purposeful. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, I'm not some random guy who came out of nowhere to start up a cult and I'm making up my own things. What I'm saying and doing is backed up by the Old Testament. The mission of God that has been unfolding ever since creation is continuing through me, right? I, I, I'm backed up by all of that. And maybe the clearest way that Jesus is legitimized, right, not just by God showing up, which, which we'll talk about next, but is in verse 4. It says, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Right? How crazy is that? Now imagine going to a high school basketball game because there is supposed to be the next great superstar right on that team. And you go to watch this guy. You're not sure uh, if the guy or the girl is going to be great. Um, how, how can you really know if they're really the next big thing, if they're really legit? One way is for that person to play and to show you how good they are. Right? Then you'll be impressed. It's kind of like showing their glory like Jesus just did. But another way is if legitimate people legitimize the player. So imagine you rock up to this high school basketball game, but there is Michael Jordan, the GOAT, and LeBron James, right? who's okay at basketball as well. Right? And they're both very good, right? but MG's better. Um, they're both there at the game, having traveled all the way from America to Australia to see this high schooler play basketball. And then they go and speak to this basketballer right? One-on-one, -on -one, right? The presence of their legitimacy, right, will legitimize person, right? Just the fact that they're there, you'll be like, well, this person really must be the next big thing, because even Michael Jordan and LeBron James are here. And when we stand here, we're seeing two giants of the Old Testament. We've got Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. Now, you can in broad strokes say that Elijah, he re represents the prophets, and Moses, he represents the law of the Old Testament. And they often call the Old Testament the law and the prophets. Because right? when you talk about it in those two ways, 
That's the Old Testament. And it's as if these two representatives, representing all of the Old Testament, are standing with Jesus speaking to him. But they didn't just travel a long way to have this conversation. They traveled from the dead to talk to Jesus. Right? And so there's no doubt in your mind as you see this right, that Jesus really is uh, legit. He really is right, the continuation, another piece in God's story from the Old Testament continuing. Right? As Old Testament believers ourselves, I don't know about you, but one of the most encouraging things for my faith to trust in Jesus, to trust that he's not some random guy that showed up in, out of nowhere, is when I read the Old Testament and I see Jesus in it. Right? For my faith to be strengthened as I see that Jesus didn't just appear randomly, but even through the Old Testament prophecies or the types and the shadows or the patterns as they point to Christ, right? It encourages my faith to believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, right? The Old Testament stretches back for thousands of years, dozens of authors. It's got hundreds of prophecies. It's got all these kind of different symbolisms, but all of them lead us to Jesus Christ. And it's encouraging as you pull the threads of the Old Testament and constantly find that it goes to Jesus. This goes to Jesus. This goes to Jesus. Right? It really affirms, at least for me, that Jesus really is trustworthy. And maybe for you, as you study the Bible, that you will find that as everything goes to Christ, it will encourage your faith and trust that he is the Messiah. Even though sometimes he does some interesting things, right? just like the disciples, hopefully that might encourage you as well. And so we see the glory of Christ. And as we see his glory, it helps us follow him. We see his legitimacy. And as we see his legitimacy, it helps us trust him. And then third, we see his centrality. Why Jesus shows his centrality, and that helps us glorify him as he deserves. You know, this scene, I just wish like sometimes. I was going to say there's movies, but, you know, maybe there's a, maybe I should look for it. Like, if we could make this into a movie, I think it would be so dramatic. Uh, because every step, it's like building up um, the anticipation and just glory after glory, uh, encounter after encounter. And so Jesus, he took his three disciples up a mountain. But most likely, this is Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in the area. And so it's a long climb up. And you can just imagine the disciples are just anticipating with every step what's going to happen, right? Where is he taking us? And they get to the top, top, and Jesus begins to glow right in front of their eyes. Like, oh, and they're like, whoa, what's going on? It's like amazing. And then Moses and Elijah, they pop out of nowhere. These two giants of faith back from the dead, they talk to Jesus. It's like, whoa, it's like it's another kind of encounter after another. And then in verse five to six, Peter, he says this, right? And Peter always speaks when he shouldn't. And he says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Now, Peter doesn't know what he's saying, but one of the words he says is tent. And again, I said this before, that's the word for the Old Testament tabernacle, which is basically a tent. God tells Moses to build a tent, a tabernacle, and his presence is going to fill that place in the form of a cloud 
And Israel is going to carry this tent around so God can be with them and they can meet with God. And they do that for about 400 years until they build the temple, which becomes a more permanent dwelling place of God. And so Peter says, tent. And as if on cue, verse 7, a cloud overshadows them. Or as Matthew says, a bright cloud. And again, in the Old Testament, tent, cloud comes down on the tent. God dwells there. Mankind meets with God there. And it's like, again, one glory after another, encounter after encounter. And we're thinking, this must be it. This is the final high point of this extraordinary series of events. Because it's been incredible until now. But right now, tabernacle and then God the Father in a cloud has just filled this place and he's shining. This must be the best that we're going to get. But it's not because the father draws the disciples' attention, not to himself, but he draws it back to Jesus. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. And what does he say? He points to Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's talking to the disciples, by the way. He's repeating what he said in the baptism. But back then he spoke to Jesus. Now he's talking to the disciples. He's like, hey, guys. Don't look to me. Don't look to Moses. Don't look to Elijah. Look to him. Look to Jesus. He's the last note of this crescendo of glory. And then verse 8, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. Right? If we were there, I feel like if I try to imagine it, I'd get chills down my, down my spine. Because it's all building up. It's all like crazy and lights and sounds and then a booming voice from heaven and he says look to jesus and you look to jesus and then it's silent and everything disappears in a moment and it's empty and the dead's gone and the light's gone and the cloud's gone and the father's gone but jesus alone remains and that's the point it's jesus Jesus is the centerpiece of it all. What a powerful, visible demonstration to show us just how important and how central Christ is. He's about, or everything is about him. He's the main event, the final piece, the perfect solution, the answer we need, the long-awaited savior. He is the final note. He alone remains. All of that build up just to point to Christ and everything to disappear. Right? The father didn't direct the disciples to himself. He directed them to Jesus. We don't need a Moses. We don't need Elijah because we have the better prophet, Christ, and we have the fulfillment of the law in him. We don't need a tabernacle for the presence of God to dwell because Jesus is the fullness of God dwelling in human form. As John says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us he says he tabernacled among us right he's using that word god tabernacled in jesus with us and we don't need the tabernacle to meet with god because jesus is now the meeting place where god and man can be reconciled it's all jesus he's all that we need so not only does his legitimacy show that the old testament continues through jesus But the centrality, what what I'm trying to say is that everything doesn't just continue, but he is 
the final piece, not just another piece. He's the final piece. He's the answer. He's the better Moses Elijah. He's the best Adam. Right? He succeeds when everyone fails. He fulfills all things. He's the final solution, the perfect sacrifice, our eternal salvation in him. Everything is yes to us. Right? He's everything. And he's trying to show that to his disciples and us. All of history has led up to Christ, not to be another plot point in God's story, but to be the climactic answer. Right? He's central to it all. And seeing him in that way will help us give him glory. To see him not just as another thing, another person, another prophet, but to see how central he is in the scriptures, but not just the scriptures, to see him central in my life, right? My story, not just God's story in history, my story, he's central, right? That will give him glory as he deserves. So let me close. Now, loving the king, living his way, that's what we're trying to do. And it's not the easiest thing. Like the disciples, we go through doubt confusion, at times uncertainty, reluctance to follow Jesus. Our passion and commitment, it comes and goes. And maybe that's where we're at right now. I, 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 know, I know my kind of commitment to Christ and my faith has, through lockdown, struggled. But what we need is not a pep talk, not a funny sermon, and not a comforting word. There are a lot of things that can help us, but at the end of the day, we want all those things to draw us to see Jesus as he is. Because if we will see him, our reluctance, our doubt, our passion and commitment, all of these things will take care of themselves. If we see his glory, uh, we will say, I will follow you because there's no one else like you. If we see his legitimacy throughout the scriptures, it will help us to trust him as the Messiah. And if we will see his centrality, it will help us give him glory as he really deserves, as no one else deserves, because it's all about him. And often our struggles in the faith is simply a result of us taking our eyes off of Jesus and forgetting who he is. That if we would just pause, remember, and look to Christ, we would gain that motivation, that passion, that commitment, the reasons to do what he calls us to do. Right? So can you see Jesus today? But as a famous hymn goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so let's look to Christ today. Now we're going to split off into breakout rooms in a moment. Before we do, I'm just going to invite us to pray for 30 seconds, and then we're going to split off. And so would you do that with me? Why don't, we, why don't we do this? Why don't we close our eyes and let's ask God to open the eyes of our hearts that we might see Jesus clearly today. And maybe remind ourselves, preach to ourselves the things that we know is true, that Jesus is glorious and there is no one like him, that he stands above all other things in creation, uh, that he is better than all the Old Testament figures, the kings like David and Solomon 
the, the prophets like Elijah or Moses. He is the better and the perfect. That all the things in scripture point to Christ and it's fulfilled in him that he is our answer. Why don't we just preach those truths to ourselves and remind us of who Christ is? Because if we will see him clearly, I believe uh, we will worship him and follow him as he deserves. And so let's spend maybe 30 seconds just doing that. And then I'll pray for us and we'll split off into breakout rooms.